2: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
5: Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
6: It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state and national politics and the
0: real issues that really matter. You too can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned, because it's on now.
2: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. And joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes, on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Henry, good morning. Good morning, Tom, and to our guests. And last, morning, Harry. and last but not least, uh, joining us for this week's edition of Armchair Politics, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Hi, Bobby. Hi, guys. Hi, Bobby. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, you know, I always like to start the, uh, the show out with um, what I call finish the quote. And um, this is where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it goes like this. Those who cultivate moral confusion for profit should understand this. We will what? Mm -hmm. How would you finish this quote?
3: Uh, Not
2: tolerate
3: it. Well, I was going to say, we're going to reap the whirlwind. (laughs) Something like that. We can Uh, go broke.
2: Well, here's, here's the original quote. Those who cultivate moral confusion for profit should understand this. We will name their names and shame them as they deserve to be shamed. Oh. <laughs> who was that? Gee,
3: that's a good quote, yeah. <laughs> Bob Woodward.
2: No, it was a different Bob. Former Senate Majority Leader and 1996 oh. Republican Presidential Nominee Bob Dole. Uh, Oh, oh,
3: okay,
2: yeah. (laughs) Of course, it means joke. (laughs) That's interesting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he passed away uh, Sunday at age 98. He had announced in February that he was being treated for advanced lung cancer, and he's scheduled to lie in state at the Capitol uh, Rotunda tomorrow, I believe. He had a great sense of humor.
0: Yeah, and he was uh, really well respected, and so was his wife, Barbara Dole, who I knew. I,
1: I saw clips of him accepting the presidential was it the Medal of Honor or presidential one of the medals, and he jokingly said that he expected to be in the White House making a different kind of speech. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was quite a war hero too. Yeah, was captured and assumed that. Well, I think war what hero. that showed me was he he had a spirit of. Um, uh, following an objective, and I think probably he proved that in his service in the war, and also in his service in the Senate. He had yes. an
3: ideal, and he followed it. I, I didn't realize until I saw some of the, uh, the the clips this past week that he was wounded in literally in the last couple of weeks of the war. It was April of 45, and the war only had a week or two to go left, and, and that's when he got wounded, apparently.
0: yes. And he up his arm, his right arm. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was. He always held that arm in uh, limbo.
1: Yeah, I think he held a, a, a pen in that arm, in that hand. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah he. Uh, I don't know what he would have done when he was president, because they're supposed to give the pens away. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, and, yeah and that would have been a different challenge for him. I, I really admired him, even though um, he wasn't necessarily of my party. But I considered him one of the great centrists who really just wanted to get good legislation passed.
3: And yeah, and he could work across the aisle very effectively.
0: I, I was yeah. a and, huge
2: fan, and of, that's what um,
0: good politicians do. They don't assume that everything is right that they believe and consider, but they sure, open up the way for dialogue.
2: Yeah, I was yeah. A, I was a huge fan of his wife Elizabeth. I thought she was a tremendous public servant, and I would like to have seen her yeah. run for president.
3: Well, I, I, rec- I recall there was some talk about that at yeah. one point. It was yeah.
0: Well, let's go I'm, I'm glad that you called the Elizabeth, and I called the Purple Dole.
2: I think right, right.
0: Yeah, I think she had both names, so it was called by both names.
2: Anyway, uh here are a couple of other uh, quotes that that got my attention this week. Uh here's here. It, this is my favorite, I think. I don't think about the former president. Mm.
3: Mm. Joe Biden. No. could it be Biden? i will going to say Biden is a, like, a likely choice. No, oh, yeah. you're
2: right. It was President oh. Joe Biden on Wednesday he oh. had a sharp response to a reporter's question on a report that suggested Then-President Donald Trump tested positive for COVID-19 last year, earlier than previously disclosed. Trump tested positive for COVID-19 three days ahead of his first 2020 presidential debate with Biden, though he also had a negative result in that same time frame, according to excerpts from a forthcoming book from the former Republican President's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. This story was uh, in the Guardian. Um, what do you think of uh, President Biden's response? Do you think it's true he doesn't think about the former president?
0: No, I think he does to some degree because uh, there, there there are comments that are biting. He has, uh, you know, it's he has just to hard to that. avoid.
3: Yeah, it's just uh, it's hard to I
1: avoid. Don't, I don't think he dwells on it, and I think that no. might be the point. I think yeah. he might consider some of the things he did, and cause he has to certainly counter some of it, but not as a personality. I doubt if he dwells on it. I think he's above that.
3: Well, in fact, I think he wants to draw a contrast, because I think in many ways <clears throat> that Trump did dwell on Obama and resented this so much to counter what Obama did, just because it was what Obama did. And there was almost that personal resentment from that one comment made at the correspondence dinner that people often attribute to uh, the reason why Trump decided to run for president. So there was almost that personal animosity there that is not yeah. really there at this time.
1: No. Yeah. yeah right. Well, don't you think it's the difference between uh, people who take their politics personally and people who know that it's a job and a service? True. Yeah. Good point.
2: Well, here's another quote that caught my attention, and it might relate a little bit to this last one. Um, I'm writing to let you know I've decided to pursue this opportunity, and therefore I will be leaving the House of Representatives at the end of
1: 2021.
3: Uh, oh, yeah, that's
2: the name, man. He's it, uh, taking, taking
1: over, over Trump's media. Yeah,
2: immediate
1: out of California. Yeah, out of California. He, yeah, of he, California. he was going to raise the means chair,
2: right? Yep, Republican uh, 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 representative... Starts Devin, with a B, starts with a B, starts with a B. <laughs> no, it starts with a D, Devin that's Nunes. <laughs> Devin Nunes yeah, of California. Devin Nunes. California. Yeah, it was. Devin Nunes. Devin Nunes. Nunes. Oh, oh, of yeah, yeah, Devin Nunes. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's devil. a B for sure. <laughs> <laughs> he, he announced uh, Monday he'll leave the House in the coming weeks to become CEO of the Trump Media and Technology Group, Moments after his statement, the Trump Media and Technology Group released its own uh, statement saying Nunes would be its chief executive officer. How significant is this move? Uh, very
0: significant to uh, what people who support Trump. Uh, there's, uh, don't be surprised if Trump doesn't win this next election. Uh, he is picking up people that, uh, that are critical in the process, and besides this critical race theory it's carrying him far, stuff like mm-hmm. that. So the country's changing this modality towards um, what a democracy ought to look like. Well, well we of course you
1: don't know what you believe, but I've been hearing that that people yeah. are looking at this new media business that yeah. Trump's as nothing more yeah. than a laundromat.
2: Well, it's going to be interesting to watch, and and I wonder... You know statistically midterm elections don't usually favor the party that's in the white House
3: that's true yeah you know, historically that's, the, it, the party in the party in the White House loses around thirty or thirty five seats on average for the last eighty years or so in the, in the first midterm election
2: and and if but, the if the Republicans do have a good year during this midterm um do you think that might cause a false positive on projections of a Trump presidency in 2024? I think so. I
3: think there could be a backlash at two years later.
2: Yeah. You know, else.
3: That,
0: yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. That's very interesting. A good question.
1: Well, you know, you've got so many things going on out there now. The Supreme Court and the ruling on Roe v. Wade, and you've got other stuff going on. There's a potential for a lot of voter activity in this in this midterm election that we don't normally see. True, and as you say, I think the, the the decision on Roe
3: Wade will probably come down more than likely toward the end of the term, maybe in June of this of twenty two, and that's you know that could set the stage in many ways as one yeah. of
1: the key issues in this election. Yep, yeah. I can see it. I can see it um, causing a uh, voter to pay more attention to the to the actual election
0: in the fall. Yeah. But that's a good observation. That if, if if the Republicans win the midterm elections by 20 seats or so, that could bode uh, uh, a dilemma for uh, President Trump's run for the White House yeah. in the next two years. Yeah. Well, I, just... I think that's
3: one reason why 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 clearly why why Biden is trying to move ahead with the uh, Build Back Bill and the uh, the ni- the sixth the January sixth investigation because. The odds are—I mean, really, realistically—even even in a normal year, realistically, the party in the White House does not do well in the first midterm
0: elections. But that bad, think... bill, but that bill back better is a is a is a noose over the president Biden, because look what it's doing to our finances, in our ability to plan for the future, and be able to pull people together. The American people don't want a tremendous amount of debt that's out there that we have to pay. I know I some of this is, is critical, you know, in reestablishing true. the infrastructure and stuff like that. But going beyond that, the American people are afraid. Even Democrats are afraid of that. Well, uh, I don't do think courses? I can speak for
1: the American people, but I can tell you that um, if you look at the economic impact of the Build Back Better plan, I think that what it... Fi- finally will do is put us forward in a much better position economically. However, I am concerned about that, uh, that figure that the Chinese satellite or the, the probe that is going around the moon, did you read that they've discovered some sort of an object, a sort of a, a square object on the far side of the moon? What if that's something <laughs> from outer space? Well, that's uh, I haven't uh, heard that story. Well,
3: we'll, we'll, maybe we'll
2: get into that in the X Files. In the meantime, we (laughs) we have to take a short break. We'll be back after
3: this.
0: Everybody's doing a brand new dance now.
4: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: From Kenneth. From Louie. Martavia Newman. From Marisha. Bertore.
2: <laughs> and the Tom Sumner Program.
6: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
2: Hey welcome back everybody we continue uh, today's edition of armchair politics on the Tom Sumner program with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by Bobby Clayton and Walton. Um, Flint police and firefighters would receive up to $10,400 each in premium pay for their work during the COVID-19 pandemic under a proposal from Mayor Sheldon Neely. The City Council is scheduled to consider two resolutions dealing with additional pay for employees who worked from June 14, 2020 through June 12, 2021 at a committee meeting today is covert is covid hazard pay for flint first responders appropriate and affordable
0: uh, it does not appear to be because those folks are there to protect the population and they that their duties require them to do what they do but uh, if, if you want to stabilize the police department you you've got to pay them they, that's uh, You've got to give them this because other people are getting the same thing. Other workers from other areas are considered the same thing. So policemen are very important that you keep stabilized.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was sort of saying it may be appropriate, but whether it's affordable or not, given the city's budgetary constraints, I don't really know. But I would, I would take a hard look at it.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, i was looking at the source of the money. What are the um, things that would be in competition for this money? Because it was part of the the relief fund, was there anything attached to that that, that, that defined how it could be spent?
2: But say, uh, public safety. Well, it was just a week. It was just a week or two ago that we were talking about uh, the mayor's office wanting to hire a, a firm to oversee the doling out of money yeah, being for, received. Three and a half
3: million dollars, wasn't it?
2: Yeah.
1: Well,
0: yeah. Is that the money that, that comes from the COVID relief? Oh, no, you can't use the money for that. Absolutely
1: so not. are well, we talking they about were talking money about, from the lawsuit?
2: No, we're, we're talking about money from COVID relief. We're talking about money in the, um, uh, eventual money in the Build Back Better Act, um, Right, right, And, and what, what the mayor was asking was for an accounting firm to oversee that the money was being spent the way it was intended and that we yes. wouldn't uh, end up having to send money back. We were talking about was it necessary to hire a firm to do that or could you know, someone in the uh, finance office or someone be hired in the finance office to do just that.
1: Yeah, I think think hiring somebody would be better. But, you know, years ago, Jim Anernick when the water crisis was introduced, when we had problems, um, he introduced a piece of legislation that would have created a body that was uh, composed of appointed people coming from various sources that would have the authority to do that sort of thing, to respond to the kinds of crises and the kind of needs that a community would have. And I think that kind of body as a permanent part of your government be preferable
0: to giving a contract to uh, a private company. But that body should not have be the last word. It has to be through the process, the, the established governmental process. They have to prove that. that well, of course, it course always has, has, also, has to be. Yeah, yeah. I think point we were
3: making last week is that for, for $3.5 million, couldn't you hire a full-time accountant of some kind for, let's say, 100000 or so and make that person's sole job to oversee that project, it just seems like you could do it for an awful lot less. A compliance
2: officer. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 I I
1: think that would be preferable.
0: I agree with that, guys. Yep. Even as a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are just becoming so soft. Uh, no, that, no was, that was a fair. I Republican know my, my Republican position. friends would would ask me, well, why would he agree with those people on that show anyway? <laughs> you're going to get in trouble. I, know, I get the criticism.
2: No, no, actually, you're you're okay as far as uh, Republican doctrine goes, because we're talking about hiring one person instead of ten. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. up, you know, smaller government, saving money, and
3: all yeah, that kind of stuff. It's, that's it's, true. That's, less right, is more, that's, so right, so
2: that's right. You that's right. That's so right. we're haven't, agreeing with you. Yeah, you haven't broken any Republican (laughs) rules or policies or anything. A $50 million lawsuit has been filed against Consumers Energy on behalf of a victim in the November home explosion in Flint that left a woman and a child dead. However, police say it is too early to determine what caused the explosion. The lawsuit filed November 30th in Genesee County Circuit Court by none other than attorney Jeffrey Feiger, on behalf of 55-year-old Lisa Rotchewick, a victim who died after police say the home adjacent to hers exploded eight days earlier. The lawsuit claims negligence by consumers' energy prior to the explosion, but police are saying the cause of the explosion has not yet been determined. Is it too early to be bringing lawsuits over this tragedy?
0: Yeah, you got to find out the facts first, guys. What What about smoke alarms? Your requirement to have all of that kind of protective equipment, that's got to play into any kind of a uh, resolution brought forward.
1: Uh, I think it's too early, early, but you know what happens in these lawsuits is sometimes a utilities company or any other big firm will settle just to get it off the table because it's costing them money to retain lawyers to to argue the case for them.
3: That could be the exact strategy there, Bobby.
1: Yeah, uh, that's what I'm seeing.
3: And as I say that, I, I, right off the bat, I think one of the earlier reports was that consumer there was no. They may have come from Consumers Power. But there was an early report that there, there appeared to be no
0: problem with the gas lines, apparently, if, if that's accurate. Well, if, if I could say something good about consumer, I don't like my bills and stuff like that, uh, <laughs> that, increases. But they do try to get you engaged in all kind of prohibitive processes that protect yourself from losses and from uh, explosions, if you will. Uh, the care of your furnace and stuff like that. I get that all the time. I know that they, it's going to cost me money, but there is an effort out there for them to see that everybody who uses consumer products are safe. I believe that they really try.
1: Yeah. Well, we're sort of making an assumption that it had to do with consumer or with a gas leak, but I'm not convinced of that. Yeah, no, and it really sounds good. like
2: the Fulham police aren't either.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there were rumors,
3: and, that, and that's all they were, I don't want to make too much of them, you know, about a meth lab or something, but whether there's any truth to that, I have no idea. But I saw various postings on Facebook suggesting that as an option.
0: If people yeah. go down to their furnace and fumble around with that igniter, you know what an igniter is, it comes on, the gas, uh, when the igniter comes on, then the gas will flow through a valve, and then the fire connects to the gas. And if you fumble around with that igniter and it does not uh, work properly, you should call a technician, somebody who knows, because that's very sensitive stuff that's computer-controlled. So uh, people do that. I know that they don't want to be cold and stuff like that, but they can't afford to call a technician, so they tamper with that stuff. So, Mm. Yeah.
2: Well, I've mentioned many times on this show that uh, Paul Rosicki always sends me an email the day before the show with a few bullet points on things we might consider talking about. And he always closes the email with or whatever <laughs> happens in the next 24 hours. And, and I bring that up because this next story has updated at least twice since since I, since I originally uh, put the, the copy in here, so I don't know how it's going to read. But Attorney General Dana Nessel will travel several times to Oxford to meet with parents, school officials, and others as part of a comprehensive review of policies and procedures related to guns and school safety following the deadly mass shooting November 30th, she said Tuesday. I want to hear everything that they have to say. Nessel said during a Zoom call with reporters, I want to hear what their concerns are. Nessel made her comments after disclosing late Monday that Oxford school officials have declined her Sunday offer to lead an independent review of facts leading up to the shooting that left four students dead and seven others injured including a teacher. Though she expressed disappointment with the school district's decision to hire a private security firm to conduct the investigation instead of turning to her office, Nessel stepped back from criticizing school officials. Um, now this story has updated because she's decided, with or without the help of the of the uh, school district, she's going to conduct an investigation. Uh-huh. And um, and and i'm not sure where that will go but one of the things that has uh come out of this story is the idea that uh the the alleged shooter's parents have been uh charged yeah and and the the question that that i wanted to raise to see how you all think about it how much responsibility do the alleged shooter's parents bear?
0: <laughs> With how this guy was involved, he went out and bought the gun.
2: You're talking about the guy's dad. It was supposed to be a Christmas yeah, present yeah, or something? It was
0: birth- yeah, a Christmas present. I, don't know that also, bought, I, I thought he bought it for himself. I saw mixed uh, testimonies on those.
2: Now, I don't know about you, but... M- my dad always insisted that I wait until Christmas to open a present.
3: <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, what's more unsettling is some of the emails are, I think they were emails or texts between the parents and the, and the kid about, you know, what to do with the gun and uh, things of that nature that sound like. It's not so much that they were encouraging him, but uh, they weren't discouraging him either. There, there were some very unsettling qu- quotes that came out about some of those those texts between, I think it was the mother, I think, and and, and the kid, uh, as the thing as things that don't do it. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm.
0: right. Yeah,
1: I think I think uh, the bottom line for me is they were negligent. Um, the very fact that they bought the gun, brings question to me about judgment. But the fact that he had it, and it was accessible to him, and the fact that he had ammunition, you know, you don't have to give a kid ammunition, that he had ammunition for the gun, and the fact that the schools had called them more than once because of things that he was either displaying or doing in the school that caused them some concern, and the parents did nothing. So I think they are culpable, but I think negligence and maybe not encouragement, but certainly neglect is they yeah. are capable.
3: Yeah, when I heard the, ch- I think the- I thought the manslaughter charges struck me as a bit much, probably. Although depending on the facts, but I certainly, ne- as you say, negligence might be much more appropriate.
1: Well, we don't know all the facts. Yeah. We don't know exactly. The yeah, idea. I say that's, that's yeah. quite
0: true. That's quite um, true. You know, my, my concern is that this young man is not the only one that feels that way. Uh, you can see, Kit. I'm, I am involved with Kit, and I hear them, overhear them talking. They talk about gun violence, they talk about sex, they talk about uh, uh, gang, uh, stuff like that right in the school. So um, there's something culpable about our society, something in our society that we're not missing. And it's kind of interesting that this is not, this shooting and most of these shootings of this nature are not racially motivated. You would think that their critical race theory would be driving these kids toward uh, attacking people of color, but it is not. There's something inherently wrong with the way we're looking at this. No, you, you know, say, Henry.
3: Most of these, these school shootings take place in the nice, yes. mostly yes. white suburban schools,
0: yeah. not, so not the of inner
3: cities.
1: Yes, uh, most, of the shooters, most of the shooters are white males. I think the um, I I heard this Sunday at my church. In this year, there were 641 and there may have been such than more, mass shootings in our country, and that is defined as four or more people dying in a shooting incident. 641 in our country this year. Mm
2: -hmm. You know what's interesting about that statistic, Bobby? I had a guy on the show uh, earlier this week or late last week who works for a company that consults with uh, public buildings and schools and others about um, preparedness for these kinds of events you know how to go into lockdown what kind of equipment to install and you know these these different things pre-recorded PA announcements and all of that sort of stuff and he's and and I can't remember the figure that he expressed I don't know that it was 641 but he said out of 144,000 schools
1: yeah. Well, these weren't all school shootings. These were just mass shootings right. in the country.
2: Right. He he said it. It's it's not as common as what we are sort of led to believe by how big the news stories become mm-hmm. each time this happens. And I remember some time ago, I think it was the 10th anniversary of the Columbine shooting. I had the author of a book about that shooting um, on the show and he had done a tremendous amount of research on school shootings as part of that book in uh, i think it was called columbine a true crime story and there were a number of things that happened in the wake of the columbine shooting one of them was the way police respond to active shooters changed dramatically but he said in his research what he found and we were talking about race and and the fact that these uh, these things typically happen in these these small um, suburban communities, and they're not racially motivated, but he found at the core that the people accused of of doing these shootings were often outsiders, and that in those smaller towns there are no other outsiders to associate with whereas in a big city there's there's a, a a corner somewhere or under a bridge somewhere or a public park somewhere where these outsiders collect and feel like they're not so alone yeah they have their own gang yeah they do yeah. and and that doesn't happen as much in these smaller towns, and so you have these individuals that will go out and act out on their own because they have no other way to discharge their their loneliness, their frustration, their anxieties yeah mm. their anger yeah. yeah i I think there's something to that. I have friends who have children. I do hang around with
1: younger people, believe it or not, who are in the schools, and they are extremely um anxiety ridden over this and one of my young friends is actually um coordinating with others a meeting with their superintendent of schools and uh she discussed it with me, and i said uh, I think that we probably have enough in the way of hardware and in the way of process to um, hide from or prevent uh, the shooting once it becomes active. However, I would like to see something put in place that would detect beforehand when one of these outsiders or some child is feeling put upon or angry or frustrated or whatever it is that motivates them to want to kill and shoot and act out. I think every school ought to have at their disposal, not your typical counselor, but someone who has the training, who has the knowledge of working with these kinds of troubled children that can detect and perhaps um,
0: describe an intervention. Schools it would do impact. have that. Schools do have that. No, they yes. don't. Not the yes, schools you that I know. Yes. No, they well, don't. You I'm, don't. I'm talking about public schools. They do I'm have I'm sorry, that. they don't. My okay. ex-husband was a counselor. He was
1: I'm never sorry. trained. Uh call called me I tell an you answer. something Tell me My ex husband was a counselor. He was trained in counseling, but he was not trained in anything doing with psychiatric or psychological makeup of children.
0: But you're condemning a school district that has tremendous uh pressures and uh resources to deal with those kids because that's the way they keep the school district stable. No, no I don't I don't think anybody
2: people. was uh condemning the school districts. I think they were talking about ways of preventing these kids from acting out the way they do and that they they perhaps need a more specialized care.
0: You need to look to society for that. Yeah. It's, you it's, know, society.
2: Well, it's society. I was going to say one other danger is this becomes an
3: Im- imitative kind of thing. I mean, all of a sudden when one when you hear one event like Oxford, all of a sudden now there's threats all over the county. They shut down the schools for the whole, what, the, the last Friday. <laughs> and
4: beyond they that, whatever, you
3: know, all kind of kids are now making threats. And, you know, some of those, unfortunately, may be real at some point. Uh, you know, I, if you go back, I don't recall a few decades, several decades ago, where there were any significant amount of school shooting. But once you had Columbine, then it became something that you could imitate if you were a troubled kid of some kind, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, so and, and I think uh, kids do have places to go. Uh, I I remember when I was on the board at Kyle, how much money they spent in playscapes and <clears throat> and opportunities for it, it kids isn't, to get it, together. With it that isn't board.
2: the infrastructure, Henry. It's it's the people. It's other kids like yeah. themselves that are absent in some of these smaller towns. So they don't they don't feel like they they have a click where they fit in.
0: Like for being along to a game?
2: Well, n- not in the <laughs> traditional sense, Henry, but you know we all had our cliques that we hung around with, other kids, other people that we yeah. felt comfortable with and around. And And if we weren't feeling well we could lean on them and they would cheer us up and all that kind of stuff. And for some of these kids that are real outsiders, there aren't other kids in their school in their town in their neighborhood that are enough like them that they fit in and that yeah, and i think go ahead bobby i
1: think i i think there's also the the um Incidents of adult, uh, I mean, uh, adolescent depression. I know uh, teenagers seem to be, because of hormones and all of the other changes they go through, um, they go through periods of depression and feeling um, alone and lost, even if they're in the middle of a click. You know, there's a human thing about um, your mood and your feelings taking over your your thoughts. Um, There was a young woman here in the Davidson High School that got into trouble just a few weeks ago, for um putting forth a questionnaire that was voluntary that anybody would answer that would identify whether people felt depressed, whether they felt suicidal, whether they had other things going on in their lives that bothered them. And this caused a great upheaval in our school district because I saw the story on that, yeah. And so I think the teenagers are aware of what's going on in their own schools and maybe because we don't want anybody to rock the boat or make waves or change the system
0: or call us out. Uh, We ignore it. Bobby, I agree with you that kids do have these hormonal hormonal changes uh, between the ages of probably 11 to 16. They go through that stuff. And that's why middle school is such a difficult segment of the school district to teach in and to cultivate the mind of kids where they become increasingly more stable and uh, there's a lot of effort that school districts use to uh, try to achieve that kind of a level of behavior in the middle school the middle school is where it's most pronounced well we you're, have to well, right
1: obviously, obviously we need to do a better job you have to uh, I, Henry, I have work to... with children I work with children an awful lot in my life and my career so you know, we can sit down and compare notes
2: sometime. We have to do the cons here. Yeah, and, right and it's here. not that
0: I don't agree with you, but it, it's I have to defend the school district for all of the efforts that they make in trying to make things together, while we heap a lot of other stuff and increasingly expect more and more. We're going
2: to take a Um, short break, and we'll be right back. (laughs)
0: Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
4: While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago
3: Senator
4: Gary Peters and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
2: Hey, welcome back everybody as we continue uh, today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. Um hey. Welcome back everybody. Good to be here. Um, The state of Michigan is dropping its federal lawsuit against oil company Enbridge over the Line 5 pipeline and will instead focus its efforts on a separate lawsuit that was filed in state court. Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced Tuesday. uh, The change in legal strategy follows a federal judge's recent refusal to return the federal lawsuit to state court where it had initially been filed. Plaintiffs, uh, the state of Michigan, the governor, and the Department of Natural Resources filed a motion to voluntarily dismiss the lawsuit Tuesday in federal court in Grand Rapids. Defendants Enbridge, Energy LP, and related companies had moved the case to federal court from Ingham County Circuit Court in November 2020, less than two weeks after it was filed. Would these legal actions play out differently in federal court?
3: Hmm. It might take longer to be heard. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, the only the only issue that might relate to federal court, I thought, was were there some treaty agreements with between the U.S. and Canada with regard to the pipeline, and I don't know the, the details there. I, I I thought somewhere in.
2: I th- I th- I think you're right, Paul. I think that was uh, the rationale behind um, a, an Enbridge challenge uh, in federal yeah. court.
3: So I mean, maybe that was something strategic. They figured they didn't have much chance in federal courts, so they went to plan B. Yeah,
1: it makes sense. You, know? you always want to go where you might win.
3: Yeah, true, <laughs> true.
1: <laughs> <That's>,
3: <laughs> and then again, I don't know any details of the treaty and, and what the rulings might have might or might not have been in that area. So I, but I believe I had heard there was some treaty element involved in that in the in the lawsuit.
1: Yeah. You know, our relationship with Canada is quite interesting in those kinds of questions because I remember when we were talking about the bridge that goes over from Detroit to Windsor and uh the proposal to build the new bridge and Canada was going to assume some of the costs. But there you get into uh, agreements and treaties and funding and everything. So the very relationship we have with Canada does interfere or intervene in a lot of these kinds of
2: issues. Yeah. And do, does anybody know or has anyone kept up with the, with the status? Is Enbridge in shutdown mode now or are they still functioning while these things are pending?
1: Hmm. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I don't know for sure either. I, uh, oh, all, all I know is that <laughs> I, I keep thinking of pipelines every time I get stuck by a long line of oil cars
1: at the train lines. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you know, it,
1: it makes sense to me that they probably still are functioning because if they want to drag out the lawsuit and they have shut down, they don't want the shutdown to be longer. So it would make some sense to me that they're probably still in operation.
2: I think you're probably right, Bobby. Uh, The Detroit Free Press is considering legal action after Michigan's redistricting commission denied a public records request for memos related to voting rights issues that it discussed at a closed-door meeting, the newspaper's attorney said Wednesday. The commission rejected the request from the Free Press under Michigan's Freedom of Information Act, despite the fact that Attorney General Dana Nessel recently determined that the closed meeting at which the memos were discussed likely violated the state's constitution. In denying the request, Julianne Pastula, the general counsel for the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, said the memos were subject to attorney-client privilege. The Michigan Constitution requires the Commission to conduct all of its business at open meetings. The Commission held its first ever closed session to privately discuss two memos, one concerning the Voting Rights Act and another pertaining to the history of racial discrimination in Michigan with the group's voting rights lawyer, Bruce Adelson. Free Press Legal Counsel Herschel Fink said the uh, Commission's denial of the FOIA request fails to address the fact that the state constitution makes the requested materials public without regard to the FOIA and the uh, Constitution contains no exceptions for attorney-client privilege or any other potential shield. Are there any justifications for keeping any of the redistricting commissions work and or deliberations private?
3: No. No, I, I, I suspect not. I mean, I, the usual FOIA exceptions are what, uh, personnel issues and lawsuits, I believe. And, and, some, is, and
1: some criminal. Th- that's right, that's right,
3: yeah. But,
1: uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't see that there's any reason for this other than just they don't want to do it. But think yeah. about the Department of Justice is taking um state of Texas to court, so certainly... Um, our redistricting commission needs to pay attention to those issues regarding um, racial discrimination. And um, what was the, did the Supreme Court ever make a decision on partisan redistricting? I don't recall.
2: No, I don't think. No, they, they, they they've, they've,
3: they've never, never ruled it as unconstitutional. I mean, they've, they've ruled in a few racial no, cases No, in fact,
2: I there. think there, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court a year or two ago, and they refused to hear it right on uh, on the grounds that it was political, right,
1: yeah. yeah, so I don't know why the commission is doing this other than just they don't want
2: to, and the Supreme Court has only weighed in on redistricting um as far as I know, there might be an exception or two, but generally speaking, they've only weighed into redistricting issues that were about race, yeah,
1: right. Yeah, so I don't. Yeah, they they they've never argued.
3: They have never argued. That's about the shape of districts that I'm aware. Of, never ruled, the shape of a district was unconstitutional. On racial issues, yeah, of course, if the numbers were off, that was an issue. That goes way back to the earlier cases in the '60s. But other than that, uh, it's it's a wide open field. Yeah, it'd be
1: interesting to see where this goes.
2: Well, let's see if I've got time to squeeze this one in before the break. Um, The woman chosen to head Michigan State Housing Agency can take the job despite her husband's significant business dealings with the agency. The State Board of Ethics said Thursday in a unanimous vote in October, the Michigan State Housing Development Authority selected Amy Hovey as its top choice for the agency's new executive director. Hovey, who is Special Projects Coordinator for the C.S. Mott Foundation in Flint, would be the first woman to head the agency other than on an interim basis. Hovey's husband, Timothy Hovey, has done extensive business with uh, MISHDA. Let me turn this off. Here we go. Um, through his company's work on various housing developments that have received loans and tax credits through the state agency, he wants to continue doing business with Mishta if his wife gets the job. Mishta chair Susan Corbin said in an October twenty second letter to the Board of Ethics obtained by the Free Press through Michigan's Freedom of Information Act, Corbin said uh, the agency has a plan to set up conflict walls that would separate Amy Hovey from any projects involving her husband's firms, but it wants the Board of Ethics to sign off on the plan before making Hovey's appointment official. The informal opinion from the state board is needed to get required sign-offs from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which funds two programs Hovey's husband may want to continue to access, Corbin said. Are conflict walls enough to block any conflict of interest concerns?
1: That's like recusal, isn't it? Yeah, Although I, she's not being recusal. And it, it is kind of, because she wouldn't, I suppose the conflict walls would keep her from making any decisions that impacted on any contract agreements or fiscal or financial benefits to her husband's company, I would hope but the, there's gonna be the image
3: of of problems there, I suspect unfortunately uh even with the conflict wall, so the the image may be a problem as long as my only thought,
1: yeah, and it might leave them open to lawsuits from competing companies yeah that's also true,
3: I can see that, yeah, so like i say even if the walls are there and even if they actually work the it's it's gonna be hard to. The appearance is going to be that there's, a, there's always the opportunity for that information to
1: leak across the walls. Yeah, and it can, it can set up uh, making them a lot less efficient. I just, yeah. I don't know. Seems to me there might be somebody that would be better suited for the job.
2: Well, on that note, we're going to take a short break for our top-of-the-hour show ID, and then uh, we'll have the second half of armchair politics on today's edition of the Tom Sumner program with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki on the left Henry Hatter on the right they are joined uh, for today's show by political operative Bobby Clayton Walton and um, we have coming up a couple of more things uh, from Lansing but we'll uh, move on to Washington and of course the X-Files still to go in the second half of Armchair Politics. You can hear Armchair Politics every, uh, every Wednesday in the second and third hour of the show um, at uh, 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern is when we uh, produce the show. We'll be back.
3: Hi, I'm Alexander Zonchik. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.